And now the show that's all about real estate and a little bit about everything else. Hosted by two guys that are too embarrassed to admit in public how long they've been investing in real estate. It is the Investor Guys podcast with host Bill Barnett and Kevin Mills. Bill, welcome to a Tuesday edition of the Investor Guys podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, my friend. Happy Tuesday to you. I trust you had an incredible weekend. Had a great weekend. Did uh, did a lot this weekend because it's a holiday weekend. We did uh, uh, Nutcracker Suite. We did hanging out with friends. We did tree lightings. We did all kinds of fun, great things this weekend. It was it was a good weekend. And you know, we talk about uh, our our shared taste for uh, clothing. I had I, I no longer have it, but one of my favorite suits uh, was a double breasted suit same color as that and uh, I actually got rid of it when they, the double breasted was was going out and uh, the single buttons were, were, were coming in but uh, I missed that suit it was a, a great suit one of my favorite suits I probably wore it too much because it was one of my favorites but same color as you that. know then I had a I mint just do uh, I also got rid of I, I I just wear the doubles right on through and yeah, it doesn't bother me. This is a single, but uh, a lot of the doubles, I, I have several doubles and I just, I keep them and wear them. I like them. So, well, you know how but, it is. You have to, you, periodically, you get just a whole closet full of suits and yeah. you have to get rid of something. Yeah. So, yeah, I as guess much about, as I love that suit, I, I got rid of the ones that were not in fashion because, uh, like you, we, we we buy a lot of suits, you know, and, and, yeah. and we'll be at the suit store a few times a year. Uh, so if we don't clear out something, we're going to end up with just suits that we don't wear because they're whatever. We may love well, them, yeah, but yeah. it's it's double-breasted and it's not in fashion, so we have to wear something else. So, uh, so I, I, I donated it, and uh, but like I said, one of my Very favorite nice. suits, that exact color. So cool. today, I got the Christmas tree up this weekend as well on my end, so very happy about that. Got I got the tree up about a week ago, but... I finally got it all strung with the lights and got it decorated. So now I feel like it's officially up. So yeah, so I'm done with the tree. All we got to do now is enjoy till after Christmas. Well, my wife wanted to put the Christmas tree up around Halloween, and I told her no, that that was crazy, and we weren't going to be one of those crazy people. Uh, We had to wait until Thanksgiving. So the night before Thanksgiving, she put the tree up. And then Thanksgiving Day, when we got back, she was decorating it. But every time we go to the store, they're coming back with more decorations or candy canes or whatever else. Easy to do. It's an ongoing thing. Yeah, yesterday I I went out and and bought the uh, stocking stuffers. uh, So which is one of the fun things. So yeah, my favorite stocking stuffer is tissue paper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so we were going to be talking about capitalization today. We're going to talk about capitalization because we were talking two shows ago about the three steps that will guarantee your success. And that was uh, analysis, capitalization, and what was the... (laughs) Acting out, finishing out what we're doing. Um, Basically, uh, I forget the word we use. Um, But 
we decided to go ahead and expand more on that. So our show on Thursday was about analysis and our show today is going to be on capitalization. Uh, There's a short version, a short description for capitalization. Capitalization is essentially putting the money together that you're going to need in order to see this dream through. So your analysis is going to support your drive for capitalization. And we're gonna cover that today. So that's the short version, but we're gonna talk about the different ways that you can capitalize this particular project. We're going to talk about the different things you're going to need in order to capitalize this project that you're going to place into your analysis. And since I talked an awful lot on Thursday, I'm gonna go ahead and let you lead off on this. Okay. So uh, one of the things I love about capitalization that we don't talk about very much, we talk about private money a ton, talk about hard money, and, but bank money, and specifically what type of banks are, give us the greatest likelihood to want to be involved in funding our projects. First of all, we're, we're doing real estate, so that's always high priority for any bank. But I'm going to suggest to you uh, that if you will go out and look for banks that have the word state in their name, that so for a bank to have the word state in their name, Texas State Bank, one that is a bank that is chartered only to do business in that state. So Florida State Bank, Texas State Bank, National State Bank of Texas, whatever you want to say, if it's got the word state in it, it can only do business in that specific state. And typically above that, another prospect that they've got of the way they do their lending is that they're only allowed to lend within either a 50 or a 100 mile radius of the physical branch itself. And and most of these are typically one, two, three, four branches. There's there's not a lot of branches uh, in these banks typically. Uh, but they're only allowed to do a certain radius. And you can ask the manager, what's your lending radius? Uh, So they're going to be 50 miles or 100 miles physically. And it's just a radius, uh, just like we do radius comps on real estate. And the bulk of these types of banks are portfolio lenders. Now, what that means, the portfolio lender means they're putting up their money to do fund your mortgage or your rehab, whatever it happens to be. And they are not packaging those up and selling them back to Wall Street. They are owning it in their own portfolio. It's a different set of rules from the federal banking regulations if you are a portfolio lender than if you're not. As a portfolio lender, they have significantly more input into the guidelines they want to use to make the loans. They also have the ability to use in-house appraisers. So they don't have to go through the appraisal pool and all that kind of stuff if they are a portfolio lender. And the vast majority that you're gonna see of these state banks are all portfolio lenders. So literally you can go to Google and you can look up the State Banking Association, go look up the Minnesota State Banking Association. All 50 states banking associations are online as far as their membership goes. That association will show you every single branch of every single bank, whether it's portfolio or not, whether it's a a state in the name or not. So like all of your B of A, 
every single B of A branch will be listed in this banking association uh, registered. And when you look at it, it's going to give you uh, all the physical stuff. It's going to, here's the address, here's the phone number. Uh, then it'll also tell you, here's president, here's vice president, here's their email, here's their uh, direct phone lines. And uh, sometimes it'll tell you how much they have on deposit for that particular branch. But when you're looking at state, that information becomes crucial because now you have contact ability so that literally you can pick the phone up and set an appointment with the president. And look, when somebody is the president or they are a senior vice president at B of A, oh, oh, they've been here six months. That's all that means. If they are a president of a state bank or a bank with the name word state in their name, that's a real position. That is something that they have real authority over. They can actually say yes or no to lending. So I would imagine we're up on break time here. We are, and, and real quick too, just if you're in an area that has an even more local bank, like I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and I grew up a long time ago, and most of these banks were, were bought out a long time ago, but we had an Akron savings. We had a First National Bank of Akron. There was a Bank of Akron. Uh, in California, there's still a Downey Savings. There's still a Bank of Whittier. Uh, those are local banks. Those are just in the area, and they work the same way. Um, as a state bank, but they are even more laser focused on just the communities that they are in. And they are all about building relationships within that community because they understand that the borrower isn't just borrowing money to purchase real estate. That borrower is also a business person. That borrower is also going to be buying a car. That borrower is also going to be buying a, a car for their spouse. Uh, so it's about building a relationship. So they're going to be spending a different type of time with you in order to get your loans done. We'll be back in just a second. And we're back and Bill's on a roll just before we left. So I'm gonna let him keep going because I know he wants to talk about floor limits. Yeah, so Kev, most people out there, uh, even, even uh, investors that have been around for a long time have no concept of what a floor limit is at a bank. Now, when you go to B of A, they don't have floor limits because they're a big conglomerate and, um, all of their lending decisions are made electronically, run through um, an algorithm, you fit or you don't, yes or no. The local manager has zero input on whether you get a loan or not. Now, when you go into these smaller privately owned banks, then you find out that uh, the president or the manager has uh, what's referred to in the industry as a floor limit. What the floor limit is, is that that person has the yes or no ability on a loan up to a certain dollar amount. Um, back before they were gobbled up, we did a boatload of business with a, a little bank out here called Justin State Bank. Uh, Justin's out in the middle of nowhere. They had two branches. One of them, one of their branches was a trailer in a gravel parking lot, literally. Uh, and they grew big enough uh, over about 20 years that they got gobbled up. But the floor limit that the president had in their real building, in their brick building, was 250. And so you could walk in and he could just say yes or no to $250,000 to you just because he liked you and believed in you. And so those things still exist, but they only exist in certain types of banks. Now, sometimes a commercial bank, which most people would have to uh, really search to find a 
commercial bank, which is a bank that's solely about business. They don't care about deposits. They're not, they don't have checking accounts. They are a business bank. They're not, uh, they don't have drive-throughs or ATMs or anything like that. It's not what they do. Uh, they will have floor limits. But when you go into these state banks, now you're going to be able to find uh, they have floor limits and that can work in your favor greatly. So it kind of wraps up that piece on the banking side uh, that's a little different than what most people talk about when they talk about getting a bank loan uh, to do real estate in. And it just can be a huge boon to you uh, if you're dealing with these smaller banks. Yeah. And talking about different types of banking relationships, commercial banks are going to be a very different banking experience than what you're used to walking into, say, Bank of America or yep. Chase. I have some commercial banks that I work with. When I go in, they don't have teller windows. They actually have desks. Yep. You sit down at a desk and you speak with the banker. Yep. Um, there is no counter. There are no windows. Uh, there's basically somebody at the door who you show them your card and it's almost like a membership. Um, you walk yeah. in, you sit down and you sit down face to face with somebody who you've dealt with over and over and over again. Oftentimes the person who set up your account, uh, very, very different banking experience than what you would expect to see. Like, like I said, there's a Chase or a Bank of America or something like that. Now, I wanted to maybe kind of backtrack a little bit. Most people, when they start off investing or when they start off with any project, because these three steps work for anything. These three steps work for any business that you're putting together. Uh, if you're putting together an app on the phone, these are the same three steps that you're going to use. A lot of people look at capitalization as what they can access as far as what they have in their bank account or they have in their pocket or perhaps uh, what they can get, say, from a family member or a friend or something like that. Don't look at capitalization in, in that respect. If you look at capitalization in that respect, you are limiting yourself and you're not going to get ahead. Um, yes, if you have access to those types of funds, great. Okay, But do not let that hold you back and that should not hold you back. And if you know what you're doing, that won't hold you back. You need to look at capitalization as basically this big giant keg of money that you can tap into. All you have to know is how to set that tap. Uh, it is literally that easy. And yes, there is a learning curve to it. Yes, there is knowledge that you need to have in order to understand that. But once you have that, your potential is unlimited. As long as you've done the correct analysis for your first step, uh, your initiation is going to be correct for your third step, your capitalization is honestly not going to be difficult. If I can sell space heaters to Eskimos, okay, then I've got a great business model. If I can take that business model and I can show somebody who has the money in order to allow me to purchase those space heaters wholesale and ship them to Alaska and sell them to the Eskimos, and, and I'm not trying to be racist or silly or anything else. I'm just showing you a good business model is going to reflect on paper. And the person who has the money or the person who's in charge of saying that that money goes to you is going to say, this is a good plan. This, this has merit. This has every, all the pieces in place. Okay. So we're going to capitalize this project. Let's talk about, we're, we're almost up on a break, but let's start talking about the different types of capitalization beyond just going to the bank for a bank loan. Because a lot of times when you first start off as a new investor, uh, just like we're looking at what capital we have in our pocket, we're looking at what capital can I put down to 
initiate a bank loan. And banks are great, but they're not the only source of capital out there. Sure. So before we get into our last segment where we talk about the different types of capital, let's talk about leverage because leverage is what you're going to use going into the bank and leverage is what you're going to use for a lot of these capitalization projects also. And let's talk about the reason that those capital sources want to see leverage, okay? Leverage is because they see that we're invested in it. They see that we believe in it. They see that we have dogs in the fight and that we are going to do something because we don't want to lose the money that we have invested. More than just our effort, more than just our dream, we have money. We have skin in the game, okay? That is why they want to see that leverage. Let's talk about, uh, Bill, Let's talk about the types of leverage that they want to see. Um, there are traditional types of leverage and there are unconventional types of leverage. So let's talk about the traditional, conventional types of leverage. And then when we go into the next segment, we'll talk about the unconventional, untraditional types of leverage that uh, people who are money people will actually take a look at and consider. Yeah. Well, the first thing they're going to look at is the real estate itself. That is the most conventional type of leverage that. Uh, we're going to see out in the lending world. So that's always the first piece you got to look at is uh, the individual piece of real estate. Now, as your business grows uh, and you can now go look at, so one of the things that we do with our clients over time is as they build on their buy and hold side, a certain number of properties, and then usually it's four or five, uh, by the time they get there on buy and hold properties, which are traditionally rental properties, Then we can go back and we will do a commercial loan on those where we do what's referred to as a blanket loan. And a blanket loan is one loan that covers multiple properties. Now, you'll also hear that referred to as cross collateralization. So we look at those types of loans. Once somebody gets four or five properties that are all buy and hold properties. And when we do that, we get uh, typically a lower rate. Uh, which is always uh, good. We're going to get at least a 20-year note on it. Sometimes we'll get more than that, but 20 is the pretty norm on that. Now we're going to get a good loan-to-value ratio on the note. And when you get into a commercial loan, one of the things that changes from when you have one, two, three, four, five properties, one of the things that changes then are these are what is referred to as non-recourse loans. So that if anything were to happen on that loan and you're not able to make the payments and they come in and repossess the property, in this case, they've repossessed four or five properties, it does not reflect on your personal credit. They can't come in and take your house or your furniture, your car or whatever, uh, seize your bank account. You can't do any of that stuff because it is non-recourse. And that's an important uh, feature when you're talking about getting larger dollar amounts. That's why you see... A lot of times people wonder how in the world would somebody be able to go into a bank and borrow $50 million? Well, they're borrowing it based on the fact of their experience and then what's the property they're uh, going out and using as the collateral. And in most cases, uh, the people are not would never be able to qualify uh, in a traditional sense to borrow that much money. So it is the property that allows them to do that. And the banks are fine with that because they understand non-recourse. I don't try to uh, see if Bill can qualify for a $50 million loan or a $10 million loan, whatever it happens to be. That's all based on the value of the property and and what it's going to be producing. Let's take a break and we'll talk about uh, more about this in just a second. 
And we're back. And you know what? When we're talking about leverage, we're also talking about the amount of money that you're going to put into it, not just the property that you have. Okay. Or I, again, this works for any type of business strategy. So if we have an app that we're developing, for example, um, the value of the app, the value of that technology, everything else, when we bring in somebody who's going to give us capital, they have access to that now, that value. If we do not fulfill our end of the deal, then they are able to take ownership. They're able to take possession of that technology. They're able to take possession of that platform. They're able to take possession of whatever it is that you are leveraging in order to secure this loan. Uh, a lot of times when we're first starting out, it's not just the property we're purchasing. It's the 10 or 20% that we're putting down on that property out of our own money or out of money that we've secured from somebody else. So those are traditional down payments. Let's talk about the unconventional, which is what Bill was talking about. And understand that as real estate investors, especially as we start progressing further and further down this road and we start acquiring more properties to place into our portfolio, our portfolio is leverage. Our portfolio gives us very, very powerful leverage in a number of different ways. First of all, the actual dollar value of our portfolio times 10 at any given time, because this is a business portfolio, okay? Uh, our dollar portfolio will allow us to have borrowing capacity. We can borrow against the value of our portfolio. So let's say we have a portfolio that's worth $10 million. We can get a $10 million loan against the value of our portfolio. Our portfolio secures that loan. Is our interest rate going to be less if we have a portfolio of properties guaranteeing that particular loan? Absolutely. We're going to pay a lot, lot less. Now, if I wanted a loan of say $100 million, can I use my portfolio of $10 million as a security or as a guarantee for the down payment for that $100 million loan? I absolutely can. Is that money out of my pocket? Not at all. That's money that's sitting there working for me, making money and working for me as leverage uh, in order for me to acquire more property. What are some of the other non-traditional ways that we can uh, tap into leverage in order to well, tap into capital? And let me just throw in on that before you shift. A lot of times you and I will talk about arbitrage and sometimes people that are listening or watching the podcast don't understand what arbitrage is. Arbitrage is I, I get it at this dollar amount and then I'm, I'm either uh, liquidating it or utilizing it at, at a separate dollar amount. And, and the easiest thing to look at is your bank. Your bank is one giant arbitrage of money. They take our deposits coming in and then they'll take those deposits and especially the banks that we were talking about earlier, the state bank, where they're gonna take our deposit and there are certain guidelines the banking industry allows them to use to say, okay, if I have X number of dollars on deposit, then that creates the ability for me to loan out a certain dollar amount. And usually it's about eight to one. So if I have a billion dollars on deposit, um, typically I'm going to have about $8 billion that I can lend out. And so they, they want that as secure as they possibly can. So what happens is the bank is acquiring the money, whether they do it through the Fed or whether they do it from us as depositors, and they may or may not be paying any interest. And if they are, it's paltry at best. Uh, and so they're acquiring the money at one rate and then they are lending it out at another rate. It's not their money. It's our money that they are lending. And they keep the profit in the middle. Well, that's the arbitrage. 
So when you and I are going to these commercial facilities, these commercial banks, state banks, whatever we're doing, now we're doing the same thing when we get to that commercial level. We have funds that we are acquiring from our lender and we have a use of those funds on the other end. We get to keep the profit in the middle, but it's not our money that we're using. It's borrowed funds. And once you start understanding that concept of leverage that way, you have the ability to do as many or as big a deals as you want to do. Yeah. And that's also not to be confused with a warehouse line. A warehouse line is yeah. what larger banks use in order to secure funding from the Fed. And by placing X amount of dollars on deposit with the Fed for their warehouse line, they're able to borrow 10 times or more the value that they have on deposit, depending upon how long they've done it and what type of a deposit they have on deposit for their warehouse line. A same, same principle, they are using that money at a very low percentage rate from cash deposits, uh, CDs, the bank notes, whatever else that they have that they've issued on their side as their bank from their institutional side uh, to acquire that capital that they've placed on deposit in the warehouse line, then they are lending that money out at a larger percentage rate. And then they are getting it from the federal government and they are taking that money as well, their profit. That's why from they, the Fed. Not the, the federal government, because the, the Fed is not the federal government. The Fed well, is the central bank. The, the Fed is is run by the confused federal. on that. Yeah, not from so, the federal government, but but an institution yeah. of the federal government. Um, so arbitrage, same same situation. Let's talk really quick before we run out of time. Uh, the the best way to tap into capital, I think, as far as I'm concerned, I think Bill too is by having partnerships. And when I say partnerships, it's not like, hey buddy, let's go buy this house together, okay? It is having somebody who has a vested interest in your success and they have placed a amount of money into that investment because they are going to get either a set standard return or they're gonna get a percentage of the profit that you're making from that particular deal. Um, let's talk real quick about how we set those up, Bill. And I know you'd love yeah. to you do that. And then we'll get out of here because we were way over on time. Not now. And I do love, uh, I, I do love uh, partnership money. Now, most people immediately go to what you were referring to uh, when you said there's more ways to do it than, than that just traditional partnership is, okay, you put the money up, I'll do the work. I put the money up, you do it, however you want to do it. And we split 50-50. Look, we can have a partnership and be partners and, it'd be 90-10, where I get 90% of the profit and the, the person providing the money gets 10%. It can be um, any combination of percentages that the two of you are more agree to. Uh, also, you can do it where, hey, um, you're going to get a percentage of interest on your money, and then you may get a smaller profit participation on the back end as what we call as a kicker. You know, so you may get um, a 10% profit participation on the back end, but you're getting 12% on your money up front. So it really just depends on anything that you want to do. I, I love private money. Does private money fall into the partnership realm? Well, when you look at it, when I am borrowing money from an individual, we're business partners, whether the documentation refers to that or not, we're business partners. We're in this thing together. We're not necessarily, and in most cases aren't, in it 50-50.
but we are in it together. And anybody that I'm in business with together, they're a business partner. They may or may not be uh, a paper business partner, but I look at them as a business partner and treat them as such going forward. So uh, I, I love person. the capitalization. Yeah. This is your money person. So the better you do and the better you take care of them, the more inclined they are going to be to partner up with you on a project moving into the future. Now, Bill, you're going to like this because one of the things I've been doing with my clients recently is in explaining how to set up an LLC, an LP, an LLLP, uh, all the different various structures that are, are, are perfectly suited for this type of a situation. I've also explained that they can do this with a corporation. And a lot of people understand shares, like shareholding and stocks and everything else, uh, better than they do partnerships and LLCs for some reason. So I explain it to them. And again, you're going to love this. Imagine you have a corporation or a business and you're starting to put together an IPO. Before you go public, you still have shareholders. You have people who have invested in this particular business, this project. Think of it as either a single property or multiple properties or your entire company, okay? But each shareholder, each investor has a share of this particular business. Treat that business and those shareholders as if initially they are eventually they're going to become IPOs. And IPO, for those of you guys who don't know, it means initial public offering. And that means when you go public, when you get your little ticker number on the stock exchange, you've gone public. Imagine being able to set your real estate company up so that eventually it's not you working for the money for the, from the real estate. You're actually making money for running this entire thing like Jeff Bezos does. Okay, So you've got a percentage of profit that's coming to you as part of your contract. Okay, And you're getting paid for running this company. Jeff Bezos does not own Amazon. Jeff Bezos started Amazon and he, he owns the majority share, so he controls it. Okay, but he has shareholders that are putting money, constantly pumping money into Amazon in the form of purchasing stocks. Now they're making money because they're making money also. But if you set your business up like that and you understand that model, then you can understand how to get more and more and more capital by buying, well, by allowing people to purchase shares of what you're doing. Do I want to cash out of those shares eventually? Yes, that's how I make my money. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that as a shareholder, not as not as a yeah. person. Company. So the shareholder who's invested the money, they're going to want to cash out. What do you do when that person cashes out? You look you at it. Look, like, well, yeah, the the, you can replace. Out. What's that? Yeah, yeah you're replacing you the shareholder. Right. Yeah, you can replace and, the shareholder. Exactly. And at the value that those shares are going for, not necessarily the value that you need for investment, but the value that those shares are going for, which may be higher than what the actual ROI is on the investment at that particular time. Uh, so look at it that way and you'll understand how to set it up to where you can get cap. You can tap into unlimited capital if you only know how to set it up. So, That's right. Closing thoughts, because we're... We're way away. This is a great show. It's like half an yeah. hour. So. No, no, I'm, I'm good because I. It, this is something that I can spend all day on. Me like too. I started on something else. There's, yeah, there are that. unlimited ways to tap into capital. I mean, we didn't yeah. get into SBA loans. We didn't get into uh, government funds. We didn't get into grants. We didn't get into any of the other types of things that you yep. can 
to do. Uh, they require more work. They require more time. Uh, if you have that, great. Bill and I don't. We'd rather do it these other ways. Thank you for joining us. We will have another great show for you on Thursday. We're going to cover that step more in depth. Learn more about the Investor Guys podcast, including upcoming events and appearances at www.investorguyspodcast.com. That's www.investorguyspodcast.com.